Let's bow our heads and pray together. May the words of my mouth, Lord, and the meditation of our hearts be not just acceptable in your sight, but inspired by your Spirit. So toward that end, Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. As well, Lord, take our hearts and set them on fire with love for yourself. We pray this for your name's sake. Amen. Well, we are continuing a series that we began on Easter Sunday about the I am statements of Jesus. They're more than just statements because they are so radical and expansive in their claims, even in their assumptions, that every I am that Jesus speaks is really a claim to divinity, a claim to be God. And it all goes back to Exodus chapter 3, where God called Moses at the burning bush, that remarkable encounter where God recovered Moses and gave him a mission and sent him back from the wilderness of Midian over to release the people of Israel who were held captive slave labor by the Egyptians in Egypt. And that all started and had been going on for a century or so, and they had moved from being privileged people in Egypt to becoming slave labor in Egypt. Quite an extraordinary turn of events, but all part of God's plan to deliver his people and do so miraculously. And the beginning of that, at least from a historical point of view, from our point of view, is when God calls Moses and he encounters him at a burning bush that got Moses' attention because it just kept burning. Spontaneous ignition of bushes in the desert was not an uncommon sight, but this never stopped burning. So it got Moses' attention, and as he approached it to see how it could be that it didn't extinguish, God met him there and spoke to him. And God told him that he was to go to the children of Israel and deliver them from Egypt and to go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. But I'm always caught by surprise in reading that account because he says, well, why would, and I'd expected to say, Pharaoh, listen to me. But his question of God was this, how, what will I say to my people that they will believe me? Your people, the children of Israel, why, what would I say to them that they would follow me out, that, I could, that, that they would congregate and leave Egypt? 
And God said, you will tell them, I am, that I am has sent you. Tell them, I am has sent you. In other words, God revealed himself to Moses as the I am that I am. In other words, the great I am. And that's what Moses went and told the children of Israel. I am that I am. The great I am sent me to deliver you from Pharaoh. Now Jesus clearly in John's gospel is taking the I am claims and statements that he makes and because they are so grand and spectacular, clearly claiming to be the great I am. So last week, Easter Sunday, we had Jesus' words spoken within a week or two of the resurrection itself, the death and resurrection of Jesus, just ahead of it, saying to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. I am the resurrection and the life. Not that I can pull it off. Not that just I raised Lazarus. I myself, was his word of prophecy, will be raised from the dead. And in amongst that whole saga, he makes the claim, I am the resurrection. So that's what we addressed, obviously, on Easter Sunday. And that's the beginning place of a series so that this week, as you know from your service sheet, we're dealing with the statement, I am the truth. Now, page six in your service sheet, and verse six of John chapter 14, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In reality, therefore, he is saying, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And he goes on to say, no one comes to the Father except through me. Great claims. And notice when he says, I am the truth. He's not just saying, look, I'm telling you the truth. He did say words like that through his teaching. You remember the old King James Version would say, Verily, verily I say unto you. Modern translation, truly, truly I say to you. And what he's saying by just even saying it twice, truly, truly, is pin back your ears, hear what I have to say. I'm telling you the truth. But Jesus did more than tell them the truth. In speaking, he says, I am the truth. That is, I am the embodiment of truth. Truth, in its en toto value, as from God, is in me. I am the truth. 
Now we'll deal with the white way and the life and so on. But we're focusing on that one claim, the truth. I am the truth. Truth is really had a hard time, not just because we got a lot of liars around, or people who know how to shuffle the truth in such a way that what comes out when it's dealt is not the truth. We call them spinmeisters, people who know how to take words of truth and so spin them that you wonder what on earth the truth really is. They know how to manipulate ideas and words and put them together almost as the science of lying and misleading. And you know all about it. And we're constantly subject to it. And what it really amounts to is that truth has been battered over at least the last 50 years. I know longer with the intellectual community. But in the last 50 years or so, it's been part of the air we breathe, almost like the water we drink. So it's commonly called relativism or subjectivism. Namely, all attitudes are subject to the individual who has them, the things that they say, so that my truth is my truth, it's personal to me, I'm the subject, subjective to me, relative to me, I'm the one who thinks it, and you've got your truth. That's what we've been receiving in the culture. Kids have been raised with it today and their parents ahead of them that it's the only way of thinking now, that there is no such thing as absolute truth that's truth for everybody, but it's subjective. So you've got your idea of what is the truth and I have mine. And it's deliberate. It's deliberately misleading. Because once you've got your truth and I've got my truth, there is no such thing as truth. Because it's not absolute. So I can share my opinion and you share yours, but we've got no common ground of conversation because you see things the way you see them. This is what we're told. And I see the way things... I see them. I see things the way I see them. So there is therefore then no intellectual conversation worth two pennies to rub together. All we're doing is expressing attitudes. I can't question yours. You can't question mine. Yours is your point of view and mine's mine. And truth has been deliberately battered. Here is Jesus saying, I am the truth. We'll come to that in just a moment. But back to the battering. I remember when I was doing student ministry, a conversation I've never, ever forgotten. Of all the conversations I've had, this one was amazing. Now, I was undercover. I was already ordained. Though the student population wouldn't have known it. I didn't advertise the Reverend John Guest. So I had the hair and the bell-bottom jeans and the big belt buckle. 
my Hare Krishna shirt, and a band to back me up. And so I'm undercover, and I hear these students at one of our concerts having this conversation afterward where one guy, as students are chatting with each other in groups, one chap was dominating in this small group of students that I moved in on. And he was dominating it with this question. Where are you coming from when you say that? So they sort of back up and try to explain themselves, and then somebody would pipe in. He said, well, where are you coming from when you say that? So I kind of, you had to be nonchalant, sort of almost give some body language, and I would say, hey, man, where are you coming from when you ask that question? He said, I don't know. So I said to him, well, how do you know you don't know? He said, I don't know I don't know. So I said, well, how do you know that you don't know that you don't know? To which he said, I don't know that I don't know that I don't know. Now, I knew exactly the game he was playing even in asking it the first time. But what he is doing is, in a very clever way, reducing people to an irrational conversation. If he doesn't know how he doesn't know, that's the end of the conversation. And if he really doesn't know how he doesn't know that he doesn't know, now we're into insanity. How can you have a conversation like that? And what happens in our culture is people take very clever ideas like that one, which is called agnosticism. I don't know. That's what the word agnostic means, I don't know. So here is a guy caught in what he declares is extreme agnosticism. He doesn't know how it is he doesn't know. Which means that if he ever knew anything, he wouldn't know how he knew that either. But he's only playing games. It's all a word game and an idea game. And you realize that the conversation with him could still be going on. At this point, we have it computerized. Just keep on adding another I don't know. But that destroys any knowledge of truth, any acquiring of truth, any discussion as if anything is true. In fact, extreme agnostics will say that what you mean by a word and what I mean by a word, when it's the same word, we even mean different things because of our experience of that word. Therefore, even our language is irrelevant. And even when they say that, and you understand it, because you understood what I just said, there'd be a question as to whether you really did understand what I said because of what I think words mean and what you think they mean. You see, it's a deliberate attempt to destroy rational, intelligent conversation and the purpose behind it, pray tell, is that I don't have to be obligated to anybody's opinion and including God's opinion, if there is a God, as to how I should behave. 
Some of you will remember the song by the Beatles, Strawberry Fields Forever. This is a deliberate obfuscation, that is a deliberate deconstruction of human thought and language. Listen to these words. I'd love to be able to sing them to you because I know you'd be impressed. But let me just say them. Let me take you down to strawberry fields. Nothing is real. There's nothing to get hung about. Strawberry fields forever. Living is easy with eyes closed. Misunderstanding all you see. It's getting hard to be someone, but it all works out. It doesn't matter much to me. Let me take you down, cause I'm going to strawberry fields. Nothing is real. There's nothing to get hung about. Strawberry fields forever. Hey. That song on its original track had three minutes of cacophony. So artistically, in all this jumble of sounds, you just sounds, they artistically portrayed the nonsense and irrationality they'd been singing about. In fact, back in those days, we figured there was a hidden message, this will take some of you back, about Paul being dead. Paul is dead. So we played the track backwards to see if there was a hidden message. And it was chaos coming and going. Deliberate nonsense. Now that's the world in which we are featuring now. But amazingly, at the trial of Jesus, he actually said that he had come. Let me just take you to this text. I think it's chapter 18, verse 37. Let me see what that says. Bang on. Here it is. Listen to this. Jesus, in speaking to the governor, said, You are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born... And for this I came into the world, listen to these words, to testify to the truth. That's what Jesus said. My very reason for here is to testify to the truth. Do you remember what the governor Pilate asked him? What is truth? Same scornful attitude to the knowledge of the truth. What is truth? So Jesus is saying, I am the truth, the embodiment of truth. And if you go back to John chapter 1, if you've got your own Bibles with you or the one in the pew, just find it. John chapter 1, verse 14, which is the summation of the prologue of John, these entering verses that introduce major themes that are played out throughout the gospel. But verse 14 says this, The Word became flesh, and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, the begotten, who came from the Father, listen to these words, full of grace and truth. Full of grace, we'll deal with grace some other time, and truth. 
full of truth. Not just some truth and not just speech that is true, but he himself, in himself, is full of truth. Well, when you go back to verse 1, which is what's being explained, the Word became flesh, namely Jesus became a human being. Verse 1 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That's the word that was with God, was God, and made everything. That word became flesh and dwelt among us so that we saw his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, I've just got to back up and explain one other thing so that you can see the context in which this is being stated. The word, word, like in the beginning was the word, in the original language here is logos. Most of you probably knew that. It's the word from which we get logo, you know, an image that represents a whole organization. It's the word from which we get logic. That is rational, consecutive thought. In the beginning, let me rephrase it, was the rationale, was the reason for all creation. In the beginning was that rationale, that logos, that logic. And that rationale, that reason, was God, and everything was made by him, so that nothing existed which he didn't make. In other words, there is a rationale and meaning and reason behind the whole of creation. It's not unintelligent. It's not some incredible series of accidents. And this is the alternative view to the regular secular view. This is God's point of view, that he is the mind, the rationale, the logic, the intelligence behind this whole world of creation that we know and experience. That rationale, that logic became flesh, full of truth, manifesting the glory of the Father. And when you attack rationale, rationality, logic, reason, truth, what you are doing is attacking everything that is God-centered, God-focused, God-oriented. It's not incidental. It is not by chance. It's inspired of the devil himself who always lies, always misrepresents, always seeks to destroy, and who himself is the father of all lies. 
So when you come back to this statement of Jesus that I am the truth, you can see how, given God's point of view, coming right out of his word here, Jesus himself is the embodiment of truth. He himself is the rationale behind all creation. He, Jesus, in himself, is the answer to all the mysteries of being and our humanity and our way to the Father Because how does Jesus use this truth? Listen. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. He is the truth about humanity and our needs. He is the truth about the Father and who he is. And he is the truth about how you get from where we are to where he is. So it's no wonder then that Jesus, at the Last Supper, which is where he has this great statement, says to the people around him, his disciples, you believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places, many rooms, many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be. And the way you know. Well, said one of the disciples, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? To which Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. In other words, the truth about who Jesus is, is at the heart of the truth about everything God has done in order to get us from where we are even here today to heaven one day. Because it's in Jesus. It's not in an idea. It's not in a moral philosophy. It's not in some behavioral code. It's in a person. It's in Jesus. Himself. Who is here. And the reason why we started The I Am series with I Am the Resurrection and the Life, because that's all by design too, is that the resurrection of Jesus settles the rest of the issues. We said last Sunday, and I'll say it again now, that the resurrection of Jesus is the central cornerstone of Christian theology and teaching. Because if Jesus rose from the dead, having said he would rise from the dead, having said that he was the resurrection and the life, and that to believe in him is to have life everlasting, if Jesus rose from the dead, then that becomes the masterpiece of every other idea. And I don't want to reiterate what I said last week. You can go get a CD of it. But this much I will say, that for me, when I am 
when Satan comes after me to cause me to doubt, when he fires one of his arrows at me, and I've got my shield of faith down, and so he pierces me, and I begin to have questions and doubts and ask myself, well, maybe there is something to this doubt. Do you know where I always go back to square one? Not the feelings I had when I came to know Jesus. They come and go, feelings. What I go back to is the resurrection of Jesus and the overwhelming, extraordinary, massive evidence that demonstrates that he really did walk from the grave alive. That's where I head to intellectually. And once I get that in place and settle that deal all over again, everything else falls into place. And I tell the devil, go to hell. I don't want any more of this doubt stuff. You can tell him to go to hell. Now, when Jesus, therefore, the embodiment of truth, says this, that if you follow my teaching, this is John chapter 8, verse 31. Let me quote it to you. The Jews who had believed in him, to them Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now you have teachers and philosophers and too often politicians even, God, God help them, say the truth will set you free. Well, this is where it comes from. But it's predicated on following the teaching of Jesus who is the truth. If you follow my teaching, then you will be my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And he goes on to say this, verse 30, 34, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Because often freedom is interpreted as free to go sin, licentiousness, go screw around. What freedom is in the culture out there is free to do whatever you want. But then Jesus goes on to say this, because when people live that way, they are slaves to sin. But in contrast to that, he says, when the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Verse 36. That is free to become everything God created you to be. Free indeed. Free to enter into his mind. Free to have his mind become your mind. To have your thoughts and your thinking processes molded by his spirit and his word. He actually, in John chapter 17 and verse 17, you may want to make a note of this, he's speaking to the Father and he says to the Father, thy word is truth. Jesus, who is the embodiment of truth, knows that God's word is truth. 
That's the word we're studying here together today. These ideas that I'm sharing with you are coming out of God's word. On the basis of Christ's teaching, for he himself is the embodiment of truth. Truth for us sets us free to become what God designed us to be, what Jesus Christ died on the cross that we might become, and what his Holy Spirit is at work in us trying to achieve, molding us, remaking us, so that when we are born again spiritually, when Jesus comes into our lives and he presumes to take over our lives and rescue us from what we were, that is, slaves to sin, and make us free to become all that he died for, all that he rose from the grave for, all that he now comes and reaches out to us for, that we might become that kind of man or woman, young person. That's a big deal. Because Jesus is the truth. tell you what it's like. And this brings to mind a very happy memory. You know how you fly a kite? In fact, we just were at the beach about a, a month ago and trying to fly a kite. But my big memory of trying to fly a kite with my two children when they were just yay, about so big, maybe 10, 11, there was no wind. We had a couple of kites that we had bought, but there was no wind. And we owned a convertible, a big old junky convertible. Ford Galaxy, huge thing, gas guzzler. And I took the children out to a field near Ligonier that a friend of mine owned, sat them in the back of the convertible with the roof down, so they're sitting on the back seat, feet on the back seat, seats on the top of the folded roof, with their kites behind them. And I go to one end of the field and I drive as fast as I can across that field so that they can get their kites up in the air. Great memory. But I'll tell you this. The kite is pulling against the wind, tethered to the string which they were holding. That's how it works. You cut the string. What happens to the kite? It plummets. It's done. It just dives at the ground. That's what truth is for us. It's the link between where we are and Almighty God. And when you sever the truth, all we can do is plummet to the ground, crash and burn, be shattered in pieces. And you see the evidence of it in our culture today, separated from truth, any kind of objective, rational discussion of what truth is, everybody playing manipulative word games so that they can simply get their own way, 
And as Scripture says, it describes our generation, each person doing what is right in their own eyes, pleasing themselves. And we're seeing our society disintegrate morally. Families disintegrating relationally. There's no common ground once it all goes irrational. So my encouragement in all this brings us back to Jesus. The Jesus who walked from the grave alive, who is present here, and is the embodiment spiritually as well as physically when he was here on earth of truth, absolute truth. Do you want to be free? Do you want to become the kind of man or woman that Jesus wants you to be, died for you to be, longs for you to be, and reaches out to you that you might be? Get into him and his word to the truth. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for your presence here right now with us. Thank you for the truth that sets us free, which is you, Lord Jesus. When you set us free, we are free indeed. So as we seek your face right now and speak to you face to face, heart to heart. Lord, reinvigorate our quest, the search in your word for the truth. Help us to surrender our hearts and our minds, our lives to you, the absolute truth, that in coming to you and surrendering all to you, everything else falls into place. We see the truth as it is in you, Lord Jesus, for us in our lives, as it is in you, Lord Jesus. We pray this for your namesake. Amen.